So you knew you were you were going to see her die when she walked out into the garage and her that was the only time you saw her nipples. Th- thank you for bringing up the nipples. <laughs> so it wasn't yeah. so it wasn't me because oh, no. I was going to bring them up because were they real? Were, was any of that real? From Rosemary's Baby and Reagan McNeil to Jason, Freddie, and Chucky to Samara, Jigsaw, and Pennywise, we can't get enough. If it's blood-curdling, spine-tingling, breath-quickening, or soul-stealing, we are ready to watch it. Welcome to Hilltop Horror Movie Reviews. I'm your host, Ray Richards. With me tonight are my two co-hosts, Helen Stewart. Hello. And Anne Conley. Hey there. We also have in the studio tonight a guest, Lizzie, who is Anne's sister. Hey, hey. And welcome, Lizzie. Thank you. Looking forward to being here. We're excited to have you in studio. Ooh. All right. All right, Ray. So what do we got up this evening? What are we reviewing? Tonight we're going to review Scream, a 1996 American slasher film directed by Wes Craven and written by Kevin Williamson. The film stars David Arquette, Nev Campbell, Courtney Cox, Matthew Lillard, Rose McGowan, Skeet Ulrich, and Drew Barrymore. Released on December 20th, 1996, Scream follows the character of Sidney Prescott, a high school student in the fictional town of Woodboro, California, who becomes the target of a mysterious killer known as Ghostface. The film combines black comedy with whodunit mystery with the violence of the slasher genre to satirize the cliches of the horror movie genre popularized in films such as Halloween and Friday the 13th. The film was considered unique at the time of its release for featuring characters who were aware of real-world horror films and openly discussed the cliches that Scream attempted to subvert. So when we start out, we usually talk about what our expectations were going into the movie, whether we've seen it before. Helen, you want to start us off? Sure. I had seen this movie back probably when it was released in 1996. I'm pretty sure I was spending the night over a friend's house and we watched it. Um, I don't believe I saw it in the movie theaters, but... I remember thinking this was the coolest movie I had ever seen. Um, <laughs> That's so cool. Yeah. I um, I know I never guessed the killers. Uh, I thought it was funny and I thought it was scary at the same time. So that was um, like a revelation to the horror movies that I had seen before to me to see it in that, given in that perspective. Um, so I was really excited to see it again. Okay, Anne? So this was totally right 1996 for me. Blockbuster new release rental girls night in absolutely you know troll on down to that store I remember absolutely seeing this advertised being really excited to see it in the theater but I don't think we ever made it to the theater you know this was sort of back in the day where um, you know media wasn't so consumable at the rate that we have it these days I feel like you know you you get to the theater to sort of see these big IMAX or these big experiences, if you will. And if you miss it, then you get it, you know, only months later, sort of on demand. And this was one of those where sort of a half a year or a year later, it's finally released to VHS. You go down and get it. Um, And at that time, I remember similarly to, to Helen's experience, just really enjoying the movie, being really scared. Um, It was a roller coaster of a ride. Um, not to be too much of a spoiler alert, but right, the idea that there were two killers really kind of threw you off kilter as a what? viewer. 
There what? were two. There were two killers. <laughs> Did you take your glasses off the other day? <laughs> I, I took them off, and it was a blur. It was like one guy. <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. Um, but what was cool watching it as an adult rather than a teenager was again the idea that we're talking about, as they're saying, sort of all these horror memes throughout it that as a kid you don't quite get you're not mature enough to understand that they're making fun of themselves so i thought that was actually really cool to see that again cool lizzie do you have anything yeah i feel like maybe i'm a little bit on repeat uh compared to what you guys said same things and nostalgia of being in the 90s i personally did not remember a single thing about this movie (laughs) i basically (laughs) am that type of person i have to watch a movie a few times to even remember it however brought back the feelings of uh, enjoyment. I believe I saw it too as a blockbuster special, um, watching it at home. So just kind of the general feeling of, oh yeah, I remember, I remember having good feelings and good vibes and good thoughts about this. Uh, I couldn't remember the plot to save my life. Did, did you, did you remember that there were two killers before the end? I, I actually did not. Wow. Well, watching it out, wow. <laughs> I didn't. Um, but, uh, it'll be good to get your reaction. As Helen once, said, once we get same there. thing. I might've watched it the one time back in the nineties. Um, so it was fun to watch again. Mm-hmm. So I actually saw it in the theater. I remember waiting in line. Um, my cousins and I went, and I actually saw it with Ed, who uh, co-hosted on the very first episode we, where we reviewed The Ring. I remember waiting in line for the film. I don't actually remember seeing the film. I didn't really take it as strongly as you guys did. I mean, I know it was a big deal in, in the theaters, but I remember watching it and liking it. But my sort of subgenre of horror, if you will, is I like the supernatural stuff more. And when it ended up just kind of being two guys killing some, you know, killing people, I, I, I wasn't as impressed. So going into watching it this time... I was interested in how it would play, given that I knew pretty much all of the mysteries, although I forgot the Fonz was in it, which was fantastic. That was awesome. That yeah. was awesome. <laughs> so um, so I, I was interested in how it would play, and also I was the I was right in that age range, 17, that around that age, when it came out. So I was interested in watching it much, much later now, um, and how it would play. All right, it seems like it's trailer time and action. Hello? Hello? Who is this? If you tell me your name, I'll tell you mine. <laughs> I don't think so. What's that noise? Popcorn. You're making popcorn? Well, I'm getting ready to watch a video. Really? What? Well, just some scary movie. You like scary movies? Uh-huh. You never told me your name. Why do you want to know my name? I want to know who I'm looking at. Someone is playing a deadly game. It all began with the scream over 911. Someone who's seen one too many scary movies. Now he's taken his love of fear. Hello? Hello, Sydney. One step too far. Like scary movies. What's the point? They're all the same. Some stupid killer stalking some big-breasted girl who can't act who's always running up the stairs when she should be going out the front door. It's insulting. There are certain rules that one must abide by in order to successfully survive a scary movie. Number one, you can never have sex. Hey, just me. Never, ever, ever under any circumstances say, I'll be right back. Because you won't be back. Get another beer, you want one? 
Yeah, sure. I'll be right back. He didn't make the rules. Police are always on track. If they watch Palm Night, they save time. He just kills by them. Don't answer the phone. Don't open the door. Don't try to hide. High school student Casey Becker receives a flirtatious phone call from an unknown person, asking her, what's your favorite scary movie? However, the caller turns sadistic and threatens her life. He reveals that her boyfriend, Steve Orth, is being held hostage and demands she answer questions about horror films. After Casey gets one wrong, Steve is murdered. When Casey refuses to answer more questions, she is murdered by the mass killer. Her parents come home to find her corpse hanging from a tree. Who wants to start us off? Okay, I'll jump into it. So in in the beginning, certainly with the opening effect, I always like to talk about sort of those very first opening scenes and what's happening there. Um, First of all, I thought, well, can I talk about the trailer for a second? Can I just say that I really enjoyed that trailer? Typically we good too. Yeah, typically we watch these trailers and they're too long or they <laughs> mm-hmm. don't make any sense or you know they're repetitive and you're kind of like, "Wait, what? Was this really the official trailer?" Like it's a little mm-hmm. bizarre. I thought that was really well put together and to me that really speaks of this era. It didn't show too much of the movie, yet at the same time giving up clips as to what's going to happen and leaving that major suspense. This, to me, and again, it was probably being an 80s child, you know, kind of in my sweet spot in mid-90s, you know, again, it might just be nostalgia, but to me, this was really sort of the, you know, kind of, they were getting all the mass marketing just right. They started to create these really great compact trailers that were sensational. They've got the movie voice guy going on over it, right? They're showing just enough of the movie. They're getting sort of the sound bites, the quips in there. You know, it's a really formulaic but well done trailer. And to me, that really like rolled right into the movie type of thing. You know, same type of tone, same type of pace where you're just thinking about, you know, it's it's a little poppy. And that, yeah. I thought that was okay. Yeah, I believe commercialization is the word that comes to mind. Like it's definitely packaged and even filmed in a way that's much more sort of sellable to the mass market than the 80s, you know, horror movies were. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think it also helped lead to the surprise that here you have this well-known actress, Drew Barrymore, who's literally only in it for 12 minutes, but the trailer shows you, like, shows Drew Barrymore predominantly in it, so you do not expect her to be killed off so quickly. Yeah, I I remember that being the marketing, right? She was, like, the main character. I think she's the girl on the front of the cover, and they marketed her as being the main character, and then she dies in the first you know, scene basically. That's actually, in fact, one of the things I wrote down too was I completely forgot she wasn't in the rest of the movie. I completely forgot, as this being maybe the second time I've watched this, that she was killed off, like you said, within the first few scenes. Yeah. Because it was portrayed that way. Right, so right. Well. You think that she's the primary mm-hmm. actress. We talked a little bit about this with The Ring and Brian Cox as well, really being used as that marketing tool of as sort of the big name, right? The the known actor or actress of the time, and then being in the movie for a whopping, you know, five minutes <laughs> type of thing. I will say it was really cool though, you know, we moved through sort of that 
that weird scream effect. I thought actually from a technical perspective where they displayed the name of the movie and then it started moved into the Drew Barrymore screen uh, scene. I actually thought that was pretty, um, pretty basic. I actually thought it was not super well done. I, I agree. I agree. I thought it actually was poorly done considering the rest of the movie. It felt like it was from 82 or 83, not from 95 or 96 when they met made it it was interesting it definitely felt like an afterthought like they just kind of threw that in there and it didn't really lead into the movie very well but then drew barrymore pops up and you you love seeing her right skinny young drew barrymore with his blonde bob with the bangs which you're kind of like is it a wig no wait is it her real hair is it even worse i'm not sure (laughs) but i loved her um i thought that scene was great you know jumping into the plot a little bit there um, right, getting the phone call, the scary voice, going back and forth, the movie tri- trivia. I think I understood more and appreciated it more as an adult. Again, kind of understanding these scary movies, which probably, you know, being a 15-year-old watching this at the time, I probably hadn't really seen Halloween, Friday the 13th. I hadn't seen those movies yet at that time. Um, so it's kind of cool actually seeing those and having more history in this genre and, and re-watching this. Can we just talk about, though, how does... She continued to talk to this quote-unquote killer on the phone (laughs) who clearly sounds crazy. Like, it's clearly not her ex-boyfriend or somebody that she knows. But she continues to talk to him on the phone like it's no big deal until it starts to get serious. (laughs) She's, like, just entertaining the conversation. (laughs) Right, right, exactly. I'm like, just hang up and call 911 already. (laughs) Those were my thoughts. I just was like, really? (laughs) I kind of liked it because I remember being – stupid and young and like flirtatious with just about anybody you would call and then you know then it got serious and she's like i'm gonna call the police now and then she doesn't and i'm like why didn't you call the police now like you threatened to call it you didn't call it the guy calls back and then you just hang up the phone and you still didn't call the police like we could have resolved this a lot faster this is true police. it did remind me of like a 90s chat room on like aol or something like that like going into a pool room you know asking what asl or whatever all those you know, Ac- acronyms. acronyms were <laughs> <laughs> LOLBRB. Right. Um, yeah, no, I thought the same thing. Like, why are you still talking to this dude? <laughs> I guess you're just lonely, basically. You know, you're just hanging out. Yeah, right. sure. I'll, I'll chat with a, you know, movie phone guy. Uh, <laughs> but actually, I did want to say one of the things that I really appreciate in this movie that's kind of a recurring theme is at least the female victims have a few good shots in there with the attacker. So I thought that, you know, I thought Mm -hmm. it was interesting because in this day and age, we might interpret those type of actions, whether, you know, it was Drew Barrymore or Rose McGowan or Nev Campbell, they all got really good shots in at that killer Mm -hmm. um, throughout the movie, you know, defended themselves fairly well. And I felt like in this day and age, we might say, hey, that's really feminism, right? We're showing strong female protagonists And here's this movie, you know, back in 1996, before we're really even wrapped up in all this, you know, he, she, feminism, you know, feminazis type of reality. And it's like, they're in there, they're fighting this guy off, they got some good, you know, she was strong. Despite the whole, I totally agree, I'm going to call the cops, and I didn't call the cops. You know, generally, she did the right things. She ran to the front door. She locked it. She turned off the lights. She locked the back door. Like, she did what she could. She wasn't a total idiot. But then it just started to fall apart, which was unfortunate for her. 
I, I think the opening, like you say, the opening scene sets up a lot for this movie. Like it sets up the meta, right? The idea that they're talking about scary movies in a scary movie and the tropes of scary movies and that whole thing. Um, it sets up the idea that, you know, the ghost face takes a lot of shots in this movie, um, which is interesting that none of the guys seem to have any bruises on them uh, later on in the movie, especially Skeet Ulrich's character who takes his shirt off, but, but whatever. Um, but yeah, they do. They get, they get a lot of good shots in there. Right. And you can hear the guy like, uh, uh, when he gets hurt. I love um, that by yeah. the way. Oh, you, I was cracking <laughs> up. Yeah. And, and also it plays, since you don't know that there are two killers, it plays with the whole motif of, the killer's in one place, and then he's in another place, and there's no possible way he could have gotten there, like in Friday the 13th, where the woman runs away from Jason, and he, like, you know, he's stalking very slowly, and then she runs through the woods and falls and looks up, and he's standing there looking at her, and you're like, how did he get all the way through the woods? And in this movie, they play with that because you think that's what they're doing until the end when you find out, oh, it was because there was two of them, and they could be at two places at once. So it sets all that up nicely. Mm -hmm. I also really enjoyed how throughout the movie... Wes Craven just throws in these little tidbits, <laughs> whether it's like funny tidbits about himself or just these shout outs to all the other horror movies. But two minutes in, Drew Barrymore makes a comment about how all of the other Nightmare on Elm Streets besides the first one sucked. And Wes Craven only directed the first one. Ah, uh, there we go. Wow, wow. Yeah, I totally he did agree. not like the other one. So he put that in there. So it was kind of cute, like here, like seeing it again and seeing all these other facts that I wouldn't have picked up on as a young. Yeah, I think somewhere in the middle of the movie, somebody references Wes Carpenter, which mm-hmm. is Wes Craven and John Carpenter stuck yes. together. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. Tatum, yeah. I think I didn't pick up on that. Yeah. You know, to sort of talk further about the plot, I thought one of the things that was really interesting watching this after you know who the killers are and that there are dual killers. So if you know that, you start picking up on a lot more of these sort of you know, specific moments and foreshadows throughout the movie. So I thought what was interesting was when Drew Barrymore was killed, at first what looks like a very awkward murder, you realize later it's very personal. So the ghost face is chasing her down and tries to get around to the front of her and is looking at the front of her body to see where he can stab her and stabs her right through the heart is what he's like aiming Mm -hmm. for. And it was interesting because when you first watch that, you're like, what does this dude do? Like, just stab her in the back, just chase her down or knock her down and stab her, whatever. But then you realize, oh, wait, he's like looking to see where can I stab her. And then once he gets her on the ground, he throws away the knife. I don't need to stab her anymore. I'm going to strangle her. It's a very personal killing, which I thought was very interesting because, you know, in hindsight, then you go, oh, because it's her ex. He was pissed at her for dumping him and going with Steve, and that's why he killed Steve. And it begins to make sense. But in the moment, you're kind of like, oh, <laughs> mm-hmm. all right, I don't know. We'll just go with it. The following day, the news media descend on the town, and a police investigation begins. Meanwhile, Sidney Prescott struggles with the impending anniversary of her mother's murder by Cotton Weary. While waiting at home for her friend Tatum Riley... Sydney receives a threatening phone call. After she hangs up, she is attacked by the killer, but manages to escape. Sydney's boyfriend, Billy Loomis, arrives shortly after, but after he drops his cell phone, Sydney suspects him of making the call and flees. Billy is arrested, and Sydney spends the night at Tatum's house. So one of the things that I thought was really kind of funny about this was, of course, when, you know, 
Billy suddenly pops up right after she's being attacked and and you want to say, you know, oh, well, it can't be him because that killer, you know, Ghostface just went out the front door. But you're like, but that doesn't make any sense. Like, why, you know, would the killer have run out the front door and why wouldn't Billy have seen him or just, but the timing was a little too close. Like, it was just very, very weird. But what I really loved about this was of course when you know the old school cell phone falls out of his pocket on the floor and she's immediately freaked out i think you know certainly having been raised in that era we make that connection and we're kind of like oh my gosh that basically means he's the killer right there because in this day and age everybody has a cell phone Mm -hmm. but back in the day people didn't that was very unique right uh even in 1996 to be able to carry um, a cell phone with you. I mean, you see sort of the technology that they're working with throughout the movie. You know, this was still like an era where people had those huge car phones type of thing. So that was pretty advanced for the time. So I, I thought it was uh, kind of neat that you saw throughout the movie, Wes tells you exactly what's going on. They actually tell you who the murderers are. They actually tell you who the motive is yeah, or what the motive is. <laughs> Excuse me. They tell They tell you exactly how they're doing it throughout the movie kind of very tongue-in-cheek yeah i want to back it up real quick because this what this skips of course is the very first scene after uh, drew barrymore's character is killed when billy comes through her window the first time not when the killer tries to get her but he he's coming in to, for a little bit of you know loving and he's talking to her and applying um some pressure to her about their relationship and this is where I diverged from my seven, 17, eight, whatever I was, 17-year-old self uh, watching this movie because, first of all, I looked up the ages of the actors. Now, Nev Campbell is like 23, I think, when this movie's filmed. Ski Orch is like three years older than her or something like that. So she, he's not that much older. But for some reason, in my mind, you know, she's got these big, like, buck teeth and she's her hair's all – she's in like these this little – you know, girl nighty looking thing, whatever. And, you know, he's, he's got, he comes in and, you know, clothes and he's got his hair, you know, all 90 styled in his, he has like a receding hairline already. <laughs> and, you know, underneath those arches that he's got. You know what, well, I'm going to stop you right there. I actually thought that was pretty cool back in the day. <laughs> it, well, it, 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 it was hot in 1997. Yeah, it, I, it, I, that was one thing I remembered. I was like, I remember him thinking it was pretty cute. And I look back, I'm like, oh, Lord. Yeah. Good old greasy hair. <laughs> but, but the thing is, I'm looking at that, and immediately he seems way too old to be pressuring her for sex, basically. And I forgot how much this movie maybe not the a plot which is the, the 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 killer and the murderer and the murders but the b plot of him trying to sleep with her basically under false pretense right mm-hmm. he's trying to get her to have sex with him and give up her virginity so that he can turn around and say look i murdered your mom and you slept with me and it's a sort of a rape in some ways right i mean you wouldn't consent to that had you known so like there was this whole weird pre me too icky thing i was kind of following throughout the movie Oh, yeah. I totally agree. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And in my notes, I have a giant peer-pressured sex exclamation mark, Mm -hmm. every teenage girl's reality. And when I remember watching this in 96, I don't remember thinking like, 
wow, that's wrong. Like, I don't remember, you know, kind of having that visceral, like, oh, how dare you? You know, that's not right. You know, it's her choice. She has PTSD from her mom's, you know, murder, clearly, as she references later. Obviously, this happens a few times throughout the movie. I mean, certainly being older, certainly post Me Too, um, being a mother at this point, I, I just want to slap that kid and drag him out by his greasy hair. <laughs> Well, he starts with the, let's go over top the clothes. Like, let's go over the clothes. Okay. And then first thing he does is slide his hand mm-hmm. up her nightgown. And I'm like, this is not over top of clothes. <laughs> oh, skeet. That. Oh, skeet. I think it was the same thing, too. I had his feelings of, remember back when I was, I mean, I was young at this point watching it. And, you know, again, you're like, oh, my gosh, I'm a young teen. And you're like, oh, is that what boys do? And now looking back, you're like, oh, my God. You know. Yes. It totally that. is. Yes. Right. Yes. As, as, the, exactly as, the only, as the only boy here uh, and having been basically the age of Billy Loomis, supposedly. Um, yes, that's what boys do. But the worst part was when he goes, but I'm not trying to rush you. You know what, Billy? Just own up to it. That's fine. Like, you want to feel up your girlfriend? Just be honest about so, it. So, you know, one of the, one of the things that, that this movie plays with is, and this is like a Western culture thing, is this concept of virginity, right? Women's virginity specifically. And is that I, a Western thing? Why is it a Western thing? Well, I mean, I know it's a Western thing. It may be a more than Western thing, but I can't speak to other cultures. But in, in Western culture, it's, you know, women's virginity is considered to be more special than like boys' virginity. Uh, a lot of times, like a, a man's virginity is considered. Oh, gender so, bias. Yeah. Yeah. It's considered a rite of passage for a man to have sex and like lose his virginity. And that's considered mm-hmm. a, a good thing. Um, or at least a more masculine thing. Whereas a woman, if she's not a virgin, then you know this whole thing about mm-hmm. back in the day about being married. Um, but I'm I'm curious because of course watching it the first time, I really didn't have a thought around that being 17. But how do you? So we have three women in the studio. What are your thoughts around female virginity? I mean, did you guys consider your like was it in your mind like your own virginity and and that whole thing or? Man, Not. you just took this to a whole nother level, Ray. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We're going to learn something here tonight. Who wants to tackle it first? Yeah, who wants to go first? I'll pass the buck. I mean, you don't have to talk about losing. <laughs> you don't have to talk. That you, is a different kind yeah. of podcast. You, you don't need to talk about losing your virginity. I'm not asking about you losing your virginity. I'm asking about your thoughts about women's virginity. Okay, so I have a thought. I'll start it off. So what, exactly to what you're describing, Ray – the whole idea that men losing their virginity is a really masculine thing and that the women losing their virginity is really, like, disgraceful and da 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 that has always bothered me because that's a male perspective. That's a male-driven paradigm. That is not a female. I do think that females tag on to that paradigm, but it is not a female-driven paradigm. So I think that that just has always rubbed me the wrong way. And, you know, certainly from the idea of this movie, you know, this didn't offend me because it's rolling into those quote unquote rules of horror movies. So to me, it was like a joke within a joke. So it didn't overtly offend me. Uh, the, the basically forced peer pressure I thought was very representative of a standard teenage scene, a standard reality for, you know, I dare say, you know, all of us here, let alone many other teenage girls. And it's just one of those where... You know, it's it's just kind of calling it out. I thought it was just sort of nail right on the head type mm-hmm. of thing. So here's another thing that kind of confused me about the plot. So in that scene, he mentions that they've been dating for two years. And I'm just interested in 
Why so he did, stuck around? Did, well, well, was he <laughs> dating her originally, and then somehow that's how her mom and his dad met each other? Or is it random that he was dating her for two years, and then he, her mom and his dad had an affair? I mean, it just seems odd to me. Like, Or was it was – were they having an affair for a longer period of time, and this whole thing, whole relationship was just a setup to get to, you know, killing the mother and then killing the – having sex with and then killing the daughter? I, w- I was confused to that point. Yeah, it's a really good point. Uh, It's a really good question with the timetable because, you know, at the end of the day, you know that he targets her because, you know, she – her mother disrupted his parents' marriage. But to your point, they were dating, theoretically, according to the timeline, a full year before that. So you could either say, to your point, Ray, which is really interesting, maybe the dad met her mom because the two of them were involved, which is like – well, then, Skeet, come on now. I mean, you can't blame that on Nev. You're part of the problem, too. Yeah, and I don't know if they go into that in the sequels because the sequels, like, deepen the mythology every movie, which is actually something I like about the Scream movies is each movie builds, I'm going to say organically. That might not be completely true, but pretty organically. Okay, so let's move on to the next part. Billy is released the next day. Suspicion has shifted to Sydney's father, Neil Prescott, as the calls have been traced to his phone, school is suspended in the wake of the murders. After the students have left the school, Principal Himbury is stabbed to death in his office. Tatum's boyfriend, Stu, throws a party to celebrate the school's closure. The party is attended by Sidney, Tatum, and their friend Randy Meeks and multiple other students. Reporter Gail Weathers attends uninvited to cover the situation as she expects the killer to strike. Tatum's brother, Deputy Sheriff Dewey Riley, also looks out for the murderer at the party. Tatum is killed during the party after having her head crushed by the garage door. Billy arrives to speak to Sydney privately, and the two ultimately consummate their relationship. Dewey and Gail investigate a nearby abandoned car. Many party attendees are drawn away after hearing of Hembry's death. Sydney, Billy, Randy, Stu, and Gail's cameraman, Kenny, remain. The the whole Principal Hembry scene after he dismisses the school because the kids were running around with the scream masks i thought was one of my favorite scenes so he goes out into the hallway the janitor who's wes craven is wearing his freddy krueger sweater named freddy yep. <laughs> that was awesome yes he goes in he fixes his hair like the fawns the fawns jackets in the closet like you couldn't get any better than giving all those little tributes to <laughs> the select people in movies and such so i, I enjoyed that that scene I liked uh, I liked earlier in in the uh, in the movie when he's when you first meet the principal and then because they're going to interview Sid the police are going to interview Sid and then after that scene you hear over the loudspeakers and, and he's talking he says remember your principal loves you he's, <laughs> the Fonz is the awesomest character in this movie in my opinion probably the best actor in this movie in in my opinion the only thing I don't I don't understand really is why he's murdered. My understanding of his murder as far as the the writing of this movie is concerned is that when Wes was writing it, the um, producers looked at it and said there's a lot of time between when um, the – I forget who dies earlier in the movie and then all the way to the end when – at the party when people start dying. And they felt that there was too much time in between there. So they wanted someone to get killed. So Wes Craven decided to kill – the principal, and that also solved the problem of getting rid of all of those extra people at the party that drew them away from the party. So it makes sense from a plot perspective to do what he needed to do, but 
there is no real connective tissue between the um the killers and the principal. Like there's nothing in there that they did. It wasn't like one of the guys who was uh running around and got expelled was one of them and that they would have then went back and murdered the principal. And- See, it's interesting you say that because I actually appreciated that because to me it just spoke to the immaturity of the killers. To me, having known who they were, going back and understanding, you know, uh, they murdered, you know, the guy murdered his ex-girlfriend, the boyfriend, because he was jealous, right? How arbitrary was that? And to me, it totally made sense that, well, I just hate my principal because he's a jerk, so I'm gonna murder him. Like, to me, I was like, okay, yeah, but, you know, they're impulsive, you know, psychopathic, immature, high school boys running around murdering people. Sure, kill the principal. I guess, I guess, but I, I sort of disagree with that in the sense that they are shown in the movie to have, I mean, it's a multi-year you know, planning they put into all this to kill the mother and wait a year. And and so they're not killing completely indiscriminately within the movie, it seems like. I feel like it was a, a, a necessary event in order to get those extra kids out of the house in the end scene at the party. I would agree with that. I, the one thing I will say, though, is it did, to me, threaten their plan, right? Like you're murdering the principal. You don't know when he's going to be found necessarily. You don't know what that's going to mean to this party that you've you've put together from like the killer's perspective. So yeah, out of all the sort of murders in the movie, that one seems the most rash. So I'll agree with that. I did love the part with the scissors when he was showing those kids like... Here's my scissors, and it was like slash slash. slash. Well, that's right. well, that well, that well, that's <laughs> that the whole thing, bad. right? The first time you watch the movie, they're trying to make you think everybody's the murderer, right? Everybody's mm. a suspect. Yeah, everybody's mm. a suspect. So everybody in the movie is. And I almost felt like, in some ways, it was maybe the first time you see the movie, it's it's okay, but rewatching it, it's almost like in your face that they're overplaying everybody's sort of sus- suspicious activities. I did. I thought it was funny when all three students went into the principal's office with the masks on. It's not like they walked in without their masks off showing their faces and then the principal, you know, pulled it right off and then it was like, you know, exposed their faces. I just... Yeah, that is funny. It's just... It's funny. I'll take you to the I principal's like office in your costume. In your costume. Huh? Yeah, exactly. And they didn't have the cloak on. You're right. Like, they only have the mask. And I'm like, why would you – what's happening to your cloak? Right. Yeah, it was awkward. Right. I mean, it was definitely just for effect. <laughs> right. But also, I was like, man, you only cut off the one mask. And then, you know, the kind of like – it felt like that came back, you know, to haunt them type of thing. You know, one other, one other thing seen in this part of the movie that I thought was interesting and seems to me to be, I guess, a mistake in my opinion – is they have the scene between Billy and Sydney in the school where she runs into him as she's running away from um, Ghostface or whatever from the bathroom. And they have this conversation and he's trying to pressure her once again kind of to, to have sex with him or whatever. And then she leaves and suddenly it's his point of view, right? He's the only person there in the scene. And you hear him say, stupid, and he's kind of like that. Like that seemed... It seemed like it would not be something that somebody who was planning all of this and sort of acting through this would say to himself. It was almost like a red herring. So you'd be like, oh, well, he's not really the bad guy. Well, I think that's a little bit of the point, I think, right? To the idea that we're trying to make the boyfriends not seem culpable. But also, I think that he's trying to seduce her. So we can have sex with her. So we can murder her. So truthfully, he's kind of going, you know, stupid, stupid. Like, why'd you piss her off? Like, I, I actually do need to get her in, in her pants within 24 hour 
period of time so I can murder her on her mother's anniversary. Yeah. Yeah, one of the um, characters we haven't talked about yet, um, which I really liked this time, and I did not particularly like uh, the first time I saw it, is, is, is uh, Dewey Riley. I like him in this movie. I felt like... The first time I saw it, he was much more what he was supposed to be, like geeky and whatever we were supposed to be. But I appreciated the fact that they really didn't, they really didn't play him as stupid in this movie. I mean, he's a little, he's a little um, awkward, I guess I would say. But like the sheriff sort of sticks up for him when his sister kind of um, calls him out in the police station. And then he's like, hey, you know, go take him out the back. He's kind of saving him and he goes out the back and the, the, poli- the chief of police is like, all right, everybody get back to work. And so I really felt like they weren't using him, playing him as the dummy all the way through. They were kind of making fun of him a little bit, but also making fun of the people making fun of him. So I appreciated that. <laughs> I don't know. I think that might be a little generous. Um, I felt like I remembered even in the 90s just thinking he was a total idiot. And, <laughs> you know, and, and this time I think being older, you know, you're like, okay. And we watched it twice, you know, so it's a little bit more forgiving. And I, I do agree. You know, I was like, okay, he definitely could have been thrown to the wolves a lot more with sort of having stupid moments. Um but I, I think it's interesting because when you really watch it and then you, to your point, Ray, you see like, you know, other people sticking up for him or making fun of, you know, other actions, the positive that he does. Um, but, you know, then he's, you know, again, spoiler alert later at the party, he's stabbed in the back and he's incapacitated. So he doesn't really actually have the opportunity to save the day so much. Um but I really wondered, you know, Ray, as being another male watching him, because we talk about this theme throughout movies, sort of the men that are made to look stupid or the men that are made to look incapacitated and why. And, you know, is that useful in the movie? What does that do to the character? Does that character come back as a redemption curve? What, so, what was your thought? So there really – there are not that many good males in this movie, to be honest with you. I mean – He's like the one guy who's the true quote unquote hero of the movie, if you will, from a from male protagonist point of view. I mean, Randy Meeks is is they have to play that that line both ways because he might be the killer. Um, And then obviously the two other main male characters are the killers. So really, you're stuck with Dewey being the good guy. And I felt like even he, he is naive to some extent, played to be naive. But in the scene when when Gail Weathers and and here outside the school and she's walking with him up you know up to the school i felt like david arquette played it at least that dewey wasn't completely stupid to what she was doing right that she was trying to get information out of him they were flirting a little bit like he wasn't completely used in that sense and and you know he you know he eventually went up the stairs and was like you know you got to stay down there type of idea so I don't know. Can we talk about their love arc a little bit? So I thought this was really interesting because when I was watching it again, I really felt like, even I think in the 90s, I felt like, you know, it's funny that, of course, Courtney Cox later is is the star in the TV show uh, Cougar Town because I really felt like this was like a cougar advance on this young man. He, she was blatantly taking advantage of his stupidity, his incompetence. Again, this is really how I felt, you know, in original viewing. And, you know, she was pretty blatantly manipulating him. Thinking this, you see, he sees that he's being manipulated, but he can't help himself kind of thing. And then the idea that, you know, she's flirting with him. Originally, you're just like, this just feels so fake. And 
really even watching it again, like all the way through the movie, you know, and Courtney Cox just has this dazzling smile that you're like, I just can't tell if it's authentic or not. You know, are you totally, because you're a news reporter. I mean, that's your job. So are you being completely inauthentic just to, of course, you know, pull them along, get the details, which you would think being a tabloid reporter and then sort of wham at the end, you know, he falls in love with her. They do want this walk and, you know, it's, it's a genuine attraction, which actually surprised me. I think the change for her was when, right when he says the line of like, yes, I was 24 for a whole year. So I went into your viewer range of most views by this age range or whatever. It's, yeah, like that's, yeah. She, she was like, oh, I was 25 for a whole me. year. Yeah. yeah. And, and I think that's, she gets this look on her eye like, oh, now you like for some reason mean more to me. And I feel like that's when she stopped trying to manipulate him as much. And Interesting because I interpreted that as she was like, I've got a hook, line, and sinker. Oh. Like she didn't need him. She just needed the details about the case. So she was like, well, of course, of course you were. Like, that's why I was saying that. <laughs> like, I felt like she was playing him the whole time. And so to me, it was just interesting. Like, even when they go on the walk to go find the dad's car, it just felt very like, okay. Like, it didn't matter to her. Like, that's how I felt. It didn't matter to her because she was getting her story. And so then when they tumbled into the grass and like, she kind of, she kisses him type of thing, you're like... Oh, like maybe I should be excited about that, but I was just kind of like, oh, oh, all right. I guess it just didn't feel very believable to me, I guess. I I think that they did a a decent job of at the party moving from her taking advantage of him to get into the party to put the camera in and everything. And then her sort of realizing that he was genuinely a nice guy and she kind of cared for him in, in that fashion. I personally put the moment where she uh, fell in love with him, if you will, is when he asked about the constellation and, and she said, no, I don't know what that is. What is it? And he said, I don't know. I'm asking you. Um, that that was a moment I think that, that was a genuine moment that had nothing to do with the story. That was just him making small talk. And of course, right after that, you know, he, you know, saves her by basically running her over to get off, you know, out of the way of the cars coming by. Um, and then they have their, they have their first kiss, but um, I don't know. Yeah. It was a little forced. I mean, I think that what they meant to do was all the way back to the school sure. that there was meant to be a genuine attraction, right? She has this whole flirtatious comment about like, oh, is it, you know, required by the academy for you to work on your upper body strength? <laughs> you know, and he has his, well, ma'am, you know, having a baby face, you know, my general good looks, having, you know, a stronger upper body garners respect, essentially, which you're just like, what? <laughs> <laughs> First of all, I can't even believe that you're that articulate, Mr. David Arquette, for, for that role. But okay. But, I, you know, I think what they were going for is it was actually a genuine attraction. The irony being is that he's actually not that bulked up. So I thought that was really kind of an awkward – if he had been more bulked up, then it actually would have been more of a legitimate compliment rather than it seeming like it was manipulative flirtation. Yeah, I thought I thought that whole first part was manipulative flirtation. I thought that that's what she was doing. And, I, you know, I mean, throughout the movie, she's supposed to gain appreciation for him as it goes on. But I did think all of that was her just playing him. Mostly. I don't know. But then they go back to her looking him up and down. So I don't know. Well, I mean, she can be manipulating him and still look at him and appreciate his studliness. <laughs> that mustache. <laughs> uh, the mustache. Oh, oh baby. You have to wonder how the two of them wound up getting together after this movie, right? Because this is what started the relationship. Yes. Which blows your mind. You're like, really? That mustache? <laughs> <laughs> to your point. Yikes. 
So let's talk about Tatum and the garage scene. Because of all of the murders, this to me is the most unbelievable. Because I don't think garage doors have the power to bring some, pull someone all the way off the ground, first of all. Second of all, fast enough to break their neck when they get up to the top. Or strong enough. Or strong enough. So you knew you were you were going to see her die when she walked out into the garage and her, that was the only time you saw her nipples. Th- thank you for bringing up the nipples. So it wasn't, so it wasn't me. Because oh, no. I was going to bring them up. Because were they real? Were, was any of that real, to be completely honest with you? Because... I don't know. I, I don't know why they, it matters, Ray. <laughs> I, I'm, just, I'm just saying. I, I don't know. You're having a moment. It's okay. We yeah. Gotcha. I, yeah. I just. I don't need the fake nipples. That's okay. I mean, did they like ice? Did <laughs> they like? Sure I, they did they ice her? Did they ice her down before she? You know what I mean? Uh, Started the scene like. Cold. That's exactly what I was thinking. She's walking out from a cold door or something. You know what I mean? To. I love how yeah, the women are so sex. practical. Right. It is cold in the garage. <laughs> she didn't have a but sweater, she's not in exactly. the garage. She's in the, she's in a sweater in the watching a movie, like hanging out in with the guys. We didn't see the nipples then. The you only saw them when she went into the garage. Right? <laughs> as soon as she opened that door, you're like, Oh, she's gone. Yes, no, it's true. The, it's the, actually true. the chill reaction is very quick. Well, <laughs> But even you know, at that, it was like a cat door. I mean, really, it's just trying to find through. Is it through like a cat door? Really? <laughs> well, and, and, only and, your hey, head can fit through. Well, there. and you know what killed her? The boobs. <laughs> I mean, she couldn't fit through because the boobs were too big. Well, you know what? I actually felt like it was, you know, sort of seeing that again. It it wasn't really the boobs. I mean, might have been, but I, I when I watched it again, I just felt like you almost see this, you know, over overlay of going. Man, I wish I hadn't eaten that hamburger. <laughs> like, it was like, first of all, who? What human being thinks they can fit through a cat door? <laughs> that was ridiculous to begin with. And second of all, she was right out there where she should have been pushing the lever while the while Ghostface was coming to her. She tried to push it; it didn't work. You should have hit it again. So you were fighting him off while it went off. Then you could have, you know, thrown the beer bottles and escaped. She was so close, so close. But again, I mean, the idea that she's the big-breasted bimbo, and she bit it, was the point, right. right? So I thought that the whole idea that you didn't see the nipples, her boobs didn't see extremely oversized, I mean, slightly throughout the movie, but certainly exaggerated in this sweater set. I, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I thought her boobs were pretty big pretty much all the way through the movie. I, yeah, I did too, but she I think they were definitely, you know... Accentuated in this yes. scene. Yeah. Once again, were they fake? That's what I'm saying. Like, did they like pad her bra and like put like like I, was was that whole McGowan, thing? I think that's legit. I, yeah. I guess maybe it's legit. I was just thinking like because they were they were very pronounced in that scene, and I was like, did they like ec- give some extra oomph to them for this particular? I think she probably kill. wore a thinner layered bra so that they would be prominent. <laughs> <laughs> that's actually what I was thinking when we were first looking. I was like, initially at first, I was like, is she even wearing a bra? Right. And then when you when they showed her from the back, you could definitely <laughs> tell that she was because they were definitely right out there. Out of all the stuff that is faked in this movie, we're talking about Rose McGowan's <laughs> boobs. Seriously? Okay. Yes. Well, the... So <laughs> I don't think I don't think that the uh, that the garage door thing was believable at all. Um, especially like you see her. Not only does it break her neck, it like breaks her in half. Yeah. Like she's like hanging. Right. Like I don't know. It broke her back. It like past her arms. Like she's almost hanging. Like I don't know. It's 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 gross. But I also felt the beer bottle situation was not realistic. Yes. Like you're not gonna throw a beer bottle at somebody, have it smash like that, and then stop them in their tracks. It's not gonna happen. Mm-hmm. 
I agree. I, I, I agree with that. It was a little much. Although I did like the fact that he was like, ugh, ugh, ah, as he's getting, <laughs> as he's getting hit. That was, that was pretty yeah, good, though. love that. I also felt like this scene, I really wanted to give a big shout out to the stunt doubles. I felt like this scene, like you really started to see the stunt doubles in there, and they did a really great job, I thought, of just throughout the movie. If you go back and watch it again, and you really see, you know, how they kind of intersplice those scenes. Those stunt doubles get beaten up, right? Trapped in a cat door, <laughs> lifted off the ground. I mean, they really did a great job. After having sex, Sydney and Billy are attacked by the killer, who seemingly murders Billy. Sydney narrowly escapes the house and seeks help from Kenny, but the killer slits his throat. Sydney then flees again. Gail and Dewey, having discovered that the car belongs to Neil Prescott, returns to the house. They believe Neil is the killer and has come to the party to continue his spree. Gail tries to escape in her van, but drives off the road and crashes to avoid hitting Sydney. Meanwhile, Dewey is stabbed in the back while investigating in the house, and Sydney takes his gun. Stu and Randy appear and accuse each other of being the killer. Sydney retreats into the house, where she finds Billy wounded but still alive. She gives Billy the gun. He lets Randy into the house and shoots him. Billy reveals that he feigned his injuries and is actually the killer. Stu is his accomplice. Billy and Stu discuss their plan to kill Sydney and frame the murder spree on her father, whom they have taken hostage. The pair also re- reveal that they, not Cotton, murdered her mother, Maureen, as she was having an affair with Billy's father, which drove his mother away. Gail, who survived the crash, intervenes, and Sydney takes advantage of this to turn the tables on his, her attackers, killing Stu. Randy is revealed to be wounded but alive. Billy attacks Sydney, but she shoots him through the head, killing him. As the sun rises and the police arrive, a badly injured Dewey is taken away by ambulance, and Gail makes an impromptu news report about the night's events. So this is the, the scene where they give the rules, the horror movie rules, which I thought was my favorite part in 1996 when I watched it. <laughs> so the rules that are stated in the movie are, one, you will not survive if you have sex. So we have Sydney having sex. Clearly Tatum, very sexual. Not that we've seen her have sex, but you just assume. That, that's true. <laughs> Two, you will not survive if you drink or do drugs. That's, Three, pretty, that's pretty much everyone in the movie. <laughs> yeah. Three, you will not survive if you say, I'll be right back, which is... <laughs> What Stu says when he goes out to the garage at one point to get beer. Mm -hmm. Four, everyone is a suspect. And then two additional rules come from the killer at certain points in the movie. You will not survive if you ask who's there. And you will not survive if you go out to investigate a strange noise. However, in the history of movies, in Halloween, Laurie shares a joint with Annie. And she survives. And Ginny's drinking at a bar in the Friday the 13th Part 2, who also survives. So the rules are not actually legit. Uh, didn't know that at the time see see well we don't know maybe, maybe Lori dies in the new movie the new halloween movie coming out so I that's don't know. a long like long amount of time to wait for that but yeah you could see that, that that's true maybe <laughs> i don't know i love the idea of the rules i was really excited when they're like let's break it down here are the rules here's what's going on i i you know being older and watching it again you're like Randy, that was a short list. Yeah. <laughs> In that scene, he really only had the three that he was stating. And you're kind of like, and your third one was, never say I'll be right back. Dude, that was weak. That was weak sauce. <laughs> yeah. I just felt like I loved Randy throughout this movie. Mm-hmm. And he knew his stuff. And I felt like this was sort of Wes Craven's opportunity to really define those rules a little bit better. And I wish he had given it more gusto. 
Yeah, I mean, I think, once again, this is the commercialization pop packaging of horror, right? They had to find three rules people who don't really watch horror movies would identify with and think were cool, and so they came up with those three. I can get it. I can get behind it. Um, one actor I want to bring up because is, is uh, Matthew Lillard, who plays um, Stu. Now, when I first saw this movie, I hated his character, and I actually disliked that actor pretty much until I found out he played Shaggy in Scooby-Doo, and... <laughs> He does uh, Shaggy's voice now that Casey Kasem's um, not with us. Casey Kasem was the original voice of Shaggy for decades. Yeah, and and now um, Matthew Lillard does Shaggy's voice. Excellent, does an excellent job, and I actually like that actor a lot now. So, he, I I actually sorry, I was just gonna say, looking back to, I remember him not liking his character at all. He was obnoxious, over the yep. top, and yes, it's exactly how he was supposed to be. But again, watching it for the first time, you're just like. Oh, I can't stand you. But then looking back, I was like, I actually felt like he played that role really well. Um, I just liked the exaggeration. I liked how it was over the top looking back at it uh, from an older standpoint. Yeah, yeah, I agree with you. I'm getting a little woozy here. That whole thing. <laughs> like, I, I thought I thought he did a good – he added a dimension of, I guess, funny or humor that otherwise the movie wouldn't have had much of right i think that's why he ended up getting the role because he did a lot mm-hmm. of ad-libbing and one of my favorite lines is when my parents are gonna kill me oh, after. He, oh he ad-libbed <laughs> yes, that, that oh it's so perfect line. so <laughs> perfect. Oh, that was a good one yeah and that made me laugh because again when we talked about the killers and their immaturity i was like that is something you would totally say <laughs> yeah. right. i'm having a party right. forget the fact that i've serial killed six people right. dude my parents are gonna be so pissed mm-hmm. like, <laughs> like totally spot on so i will say just from the overall you know the killing moving through the house the chase scene i thought that was all really well executed generally all things considered you know the big reveal of having two killers Knowing it and watching it again, I was able to pick up on a lot more pieces throughout the movie. Again, as you know, even in that scene much earlier on at the school and they're sitting in the fountain, well, nobody said you killed anyone, you know, like stop talking. Like there are a lot of, you know, foreshadowing events and a lot of clever interwoven moments throughout the movie when you know they are the killers. But back in the day, that was a huge reveal because you're like, you know, either people are going, I knew it was him or, you know, oh, no, I totally thought it was the other guy or whatever. And then, right, they is it Skeet who comes up behind her or is it Stu? Yeah, Stu. It's Stu. Yeah, because he's so tall. Comes around behind her and kind of blocks her and you're just like, oh, my gosh, it's the two of them. That's crazy. It makes so much sense because you, you couldn't keep track of the two yeah. of them. And then watching it again, I try to sort of pinpoint exactly who it was murdering each one because they were pretty clever right about showing somebody that was in the scene who was a suspect and then somebody being murdered and then switching it back and forth it's very very smart yeah the one thing that of course you have to do with the movie but it didn't really make sense to me was the i don't know who the act the voice actor is that does ghostface's voice but it's interesting that no matter when he speaks he sounds the same Right. And Matthew Lillard and um, and Skeet Ulrich, their cadences, their speech patterns of their characters are nowhere near the same. So it's interesting that, like, you know, you can't tell who it is when in reality you probably could tell that it wasn't the same person, at least. You know, it's interesting you say that because the second time when I watched it, which I totally agree at first, I was just like, and then you hear, uh, you know, Nev Campbell on there and you can like hear her voice. She doesn't even sound like them. So you're like, uh, 
this is kind of beginning to fall apart. But what I will say is when I watched it again, you know, very much uh, in the first session, you could tell that it was Stu going after his girlfriend, whereas when it was uh, uh, Skeet Ulrich, it, they actually did change the language and uh, tone a little bit more, and you actually could tell a little bit that it was that character instead. Okay, quick housekeeping note. Um, Anne's little boy came downstairs, so uh, she is uh, putting him back to bed, so she will not be with us for the rest of this episode. I do have her scores, and I will let you know what they are when we get to the end. All right, so to finish this up, the the other big scene that I thought was unrealistic, along with the garage door opening, was when Sid falls from the second story into the boat. Now, I'm not really sure why the boat would be soft um, and what would be in it to make it soft. Because you would think you would land and hit, like, the seats and break every bone in your body. But apparently that's not this particular boat. I don't know. It, it, do you guys know much about boats and storage? I mean, do they do they wrap them in such a way that, like, they're soft? I don't know. I no. I do not know. <laughs> no. Even if it is with the bubble wrap, she could potentially maybe bust through that if you're up high enough. Or, I mean, clearly the way this one was presented, it was definitely a stunt protection <laughs> Yeah, no, I, to no, fall I agree. onto. Yeah. yeah, and she just like, she and hits she it and like bounces and rolls exactly. off and she's like, I'm, I'm up and I'm running. Now, granted, if I had somebody chasing me with a knife, I guarantee the adrenaline's going, so maybe I'm not feeling the broken bones, but at some point, you probably have broken bones. Especially from that high up of a landing and her jumping down and basically, I believe, from what I remember, landing on her back. Um, and then, like you said, just being able to roll off. Uh, yeah. Even with adrenaline that, you're still going to be hurt some way somehow and not functioning as well as she does post jump essentially. Okay. So let's, let's wrap this up. The, at the very end, right. You have the two killers, they stab each other, right. To try to mm -hmm. enact their plan of being the only two that are alive at the end. Uh, then Gail Weathers comes in and distracts them and, uh, Sydney and her father get away and then they turn the tables on them and then they're both killed. Basically, she drops the TV on Stu, and uh, and Billy gets shot a couple times, right? Let's not forget about Kenny, who gets killed and then ends up being window wiped off the van. Oh, that's right. <laughs> oh yeah, that's a, that was a while ago. That's the right. Yeah, man. poor, poor, poor Kenny. Yeah, yeah. Down a little bit more. That's right. Poor, poor Kenny. That that whole thing was actually a pretty funny scene. That was Aside pretty good. Poor Kenny, but but it was pretty funny. I thought that was well played out. Yeah. So I enjoyed the ending. I thought the ending was good. I liked the whole. The way that the two murderers were stabbing each other mm -hmm. and going too far, and they knew it. And, and of course, we just talked about Stu's um, Matthew Lillard's acting and Stu kind of being over the top and everything. And I thought that was, that shine that made that scene shine to me mm -hmm. because without that, I feel like it would have been sort of a lesser kind of a lesser scene. Um, and then, of course, I, one thing I don't understand is what how did Sydney have enough time to get into the whole costume? That she like comes out of the closet having, you know, not stabbed, but poked um, Billy with the umbrella or whatever. Or the, yeah, the umbrella. And then she's like in the full like ghost face costume and she like takes it off. I don't know. What, did, where did she find the time to like dress up? That is a good point. That was um, pretty quick. Was it and, done before? No. Was it, that no, the no, only she, scene that she came in? Yeah. Came that's what it, right? and, and if you had the choice of dressing up as ghost face, 
or getting the duct tape off your father so he could help you. (laughs) I'm pretty sure, like, I mean, she just, I mean, she shoved him in the closet and he just stayed there the whole time. He didn't even, like, try to come out and help her. I was, I guess, you know, you didn't want him in there to save the day, but... I don't know. It was a little unrealistic to me. I really liked the ending, too. I thought it actually left for a good hanger for a sequel of the whole duct tape in the face, falling down the stairs, and there's the general unpredictability. Um, and I, clearly, I barely remember this one, so I obviously don't remember Screen 2, so I guess maybe we <laughs> yeah. can review the next one. Um, but I definitely felt like it was a great ending and, and uh, you know, new beginning for pickup for the next movie. So yeah, and the next movie actually came out in 1997, which I was surprised. I mean, I mean, basically they started right. filming the second movie right after the first one ended. I'm, I'd be curious in research whether or not Wes Craven wrote them together. I mean, one of the things I found interesting was Cotton Weary, who's in the second movie a lot, was cast with an, an I don't know how known of an actor he was at the time, but he was a real actor. It wasn't just some random guy on a you know the 30 seconds or I mean 10 seconds of news footage you see. And so they must have known or at least have set up the sequel, knowing that they were going to bring him back for for a bigger part in the second movie. Especially with this movie being so popular back in the day. Remember, it was definitely um, clearly a blockbuster hit. So to have that introduction sure. so quickly thereafter um, made, it, made it interesting. And I believe even Scream 3 came right after that. That was in 2000, it? yeah. It was, oh, like three, was, it was like three years later. Yeah, okay. a couple years later. But no, excellent. So there, I did find a couple of fun facts. Um, so there were at least 15 scary movies mentioned throughout the film. They are The Bad Seed, The Howling, Terror Train, Prom Night, The Town That Dreaded Sundown, A Nightmare on Elm Street, The Evil Dead, The Exorcist, Friday the 13th, Halloween, Carrie, The Silence of the Lambs, Psycho, Hellraiser, and The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Um, another interesting thing that I thought, um, the use of caller ID increased more than threefold after the release of this film. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) I thought that was interesting because I know that was like the hot thing. If somebody Mm -hmm. called you pranking you, you were like, oh, I'm going to caller ID you. Star Star 69. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. Um, during production, Ghostface's signature black robe was going to be white to make him appear more like a ghost. However, it was considered kind of a faux pas because they thought it might look too much like Ku Klux Klan wear. Ah, there you go. Yeah, and especially if they'd have made, like, the ghost face black instead of white, then it would have been, like, (laughs) Ku Klux Klan and blackface, which would have been really bad. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And then at one point during the filming of the opening scene, someone forgot to unplug the phone that Casey used to try to call the cops, so she actually called the cops, and they were very confused 911 operators thinking, like, hearing that screaming oh, at the end funny. of her life scene. Oh, wow. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. I would have been horrified if that I had was heard horrible. that. I had no idea they made so many references to all the other horror movies. Mm-hmm. And Linda Blair was the one annoying yes, TV operator. Yes, the TV reporter, mm-hmm. yeah. I caught that. Um, I don't think I realized it the first time I saw it, but we did just review The Exorcist, so I was like, oh, wait, that's, yeah. that's Reagan McNeil. Yeah, those are some of the things that I would, going back, watching it, would like to pick up on. Um, in order for hmm. Drew um, Barrymore to look scared and crying, mm-hmm. they kept telling her animal sob stories because she's an animal <laughs> activist. Seems kind of nice. awful and torturous, <laughs> but yeah. And that's why she gets paid the big bucks. Okay, now that we've reviewed the movie, it's time to rate it. Only the best movies make it to the top of the hill, and to be the best, they have to perform in three categories. First, technical composition which represents how well the movie's made, including script, directing, cinematography, acting, and effects. Impact, which represents how well the movie accomplished its emotional intent, 
Was it scary or funny? Did it make you question mankind or the nature of your reality? And enjoyment, which is pretty simple. Uh, How much did you enjoy watching the movie? Would you watch it again or do you never want to see it again? So before we give our ratings for the movie, let's go over the scale. So are we our scale goes from 1 to 10. 1 to 3 is like getting hit with beer bottles. 4 to 6 is like being expelled from school by the Fonz. <laughs> and 7 to 9 is like getting crushed by a garage door. And 10 is like having sex with your boyfriend and then finding out that he killed your mother. <laughs> so let's start with techn- technical composition. So what did you think, Helen? I gave it an 8. I thought that they did a really good job with the effects. Some of them might not have been realistic, like the garage scene, but I give that a lot of creativity points because I would never have thought of that myself. Um, I enjoyed the acting for the most part. I remembered the guys being a lot hotter when I was younger, so I was a little (laughs) disappointed to go back and be like, what was I thinking? But overall, I thought that they did a really good job. So um, when I watched the movie... Um, I was expect- expecting the boobs to be smaller, but they weren't. They were still pretty big. So <laughs> I, I, I was, I was, yeah, I was pleasantly surprised by that. Uh, Liz- Is that a technical competency or <laughs> it, is that it, impact? No, no, it, 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 it could <laughs> the nipples be. Nipples are the impact. <laughs> yeah, it could be both depending on how they're used. <laughs> and what number did you give it? <laughs> so I, um, I gave technical competency um, a seven. I give this movie a seven, uh, and Anne rated it a five. No details. I have no It'll, details of hers. I, I, I just know it's a five. five. I too gave it an eight because I actually very much so thought as well that looking back, the technology was well constructed uh, for the 90s. I felt like it was smooth transitions, yet still with a punch of uh, surprise um, and thoroughly enjoyable. You wanted to bring up the you wanted to bring up the music, Lizzie. Oh yes, I uh, I thought it was. I just there were a couple things in here where it was like schools out for the summer, <laughs> and uh, just the use of like all the blockbuster you know videos and kind of bringing back the '90s vibe. But the only thing I didn't like about well, I guess for pros and cons, I enjoyed the songs that were in the movie. Um, I also remember Scream being a blockbuster hit uh, soundtrack. I don't remember specifically Scream 1, but I remember back in the day, one of those at least being a, sound, a blockbuster soundtrack. Um, but it was interesting where they placed it. It was I felt it was very sporadic when they used it. And I don't know how yeah. well it really was impactful for the you know specific scenes. Yeah, the, the one song, and I can't remember what it, I can't remember now what it is, but I remember it being odd to me was... Um, when Billy is basically pressuring uh, Sydney to have sex with him the first time when he first comes into her room, and they they lay on the they lay on the bed, and it's the over the clothes uh, mm-hmm. part of the movie, and they're playing I forget what song it is, but they're playing like a different rendition of it, it's acoustic rendition or something, but it's slow, mm-hmm. and it's definitely to me was ominous, like it definitely felt like something was wrong uh, with that scene. Um, because they were playing that music. I think it was the Fear the Reaper song. It was Fear the Reaper. Yes. You're absolutely and right. And that was a tribute to Halloween when they're driving in the car and they play that same song. Yeah, it, it was weirdly uh, placed. It was a weird, yeah, place. weirdly weird. placement yeah. to me. Yep. Yeah. All right. So, what about um, what about impact? What did you think, Helen? I gave it a six. I think that there was a lot of funny parts, which was probably what they were going for. And there was a lot of, of scary parts, but I don't think that they were overly scary. There was only one part where I jumped. Um, but other than that, like, you know, it was okay. Gotcha. Lizzie? 
I wasn't quite sure what your scale of what we were using for impact, but I gave it a five. Um, it takes a lot to scare me. Uh, and so again, I thought this was a very funny movie. that was enjoyable. Um, I thought it did its job. I thought it was very a soft, you know, movie, scary movie, I guess. Um, what gets me is usually it's like a lot of blood and gore that I'm like, oh, no, that's a horror movie. So this was very much middle of the road. Gotcha. Yeah, I, I felt like this movie did what it set out to accomplish, right? I mean, it was it was a funny movie and also mm-hmm. a scary movie in the sense of the jump scares and the reality of uh, actual murder or kind of coming into your home and chasing you around. I mean, it wasn't like Annabelle with the, the doll and demons and that sort of thing, um, which is kind of more my more my jam as far as horror movies. But I rated it a seven. I felt like it accomplished what it was supposed to accomplish. And Anne rated it an eight, so apparently she felt that it was uh, <laughs> it was impactful as well. And so, uh, finally, let's talk about enjoyment. Lizzie, did you enjoy this movie? I love this movie, actually. It really brought back a lot of memories. Very nostalgic. Love seeing the actors again in different light. Um, I did give it an eight because of that fact. Helen? I gave it a seven. I I agree with you. I felt like it brought me back to a time that I really enjoyed uh, at the, that stage that you're growing up in, and you just see all these things that brought it back all those good memories, and and it was just it was an enjoyable movie. Okay, and uh, so Anne rated it an eight. Um, I rated it a four. <laughs> so I'm going to be the odd man out here. Um, I mean, it's a well-made movie, and it was impactful in the sense that it was funny and and scary but for my own personal enjoyment i I don't have to see this movie again um i'm sure part of that's because once you know who the killers are it changes the way you view the movie but also it's just not my preferred subgenre of horror i i think the first time i saw it the sort of tongue-in-cheek meta uh scary movie thing where they're inside a scary movie making fun of and critiquing the the tropes of horror movies up to that point was cool but it kind of wore on me watching it the second time so i'm going to give it a four well average but on the low end of average i think after you mentioning that though i remember watching it for the first time and i always thought eh eh like it left me wanting to see scream 2 because you could tell that it was left as basically there is going to be a sequel but at the same time i wasn't thoroughly impressed but looking back this time i know i think it's just the pure nostalgic factor of being like oh my gosh, that's right, and thinking back to the 90s and everything that was in the movie uh, this time around, I definitely enjoyed it much more, and especially since I really didn't remember too much of it, mm-hmm. um, yeah, sure. that I would want to go ahead and watch Scream 2 now. So, Okay, so here are the scores. Anne rated this movie a 7. Helen, you rated this movie a 7. <laughs> Lizzie, you rated this movie a 7. And I rated this movie a six. So if you add all those scores up and you divide by four, you get 6.75. So that is the score for Scream, which does not place it at the top of the hill. Currently, the movie that is sitting at the top of the hill is Annabelle. Oh. Still. You know what? I don't think I have seen that movie myself. Mm, you should. Be Clearly, it's one well, to watch. Go watch it and then listen to our review. <laughs> Will do, and I'll report back. Okay, so I think that's all we have. If you enjoyed this podcast, help us grow our audience. Rate and review us on iTunes, and please share with your friends and family on Facebook, Twitter, and other social media platforms. 
I want to thank you for joining us for this episode of Hilltop Horror Movie Reviews. I'm your host, Ray Richards, and on behalf of my co-hosts, I hope you'll join us next time when we review the 1978 horror classic, Halloween. <laughs>